Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's Scripture Reflections. Welcome to a special episode of Inside the Vatican with America Media. I'm your host, Colleen Dully. I've always been really interested in what Pope Francis was citing, especially things that were kind of out of the ordinary for a papal document. Usually when popes write, they cite other popes or they cite themselves, they cite important church documents. But every once in a while, Pope Francis will slip in a reference like in Amoris Laetitia, where he slides in a reference to an Argentine love poem. In his interviews, he's always referencing classical literature like the Aeneid and the Odyssey. And I always wanted to know about the influence that literature has had on the Pope. It was always clear that he had loved literature and that he was really well-read. He had been a high school literature teacher. During the pandemic, I noticed that those references became a lot more noticeable. Pope Francis was referencing one book in particular a lot. It's called The Betrothed. It's a 19th century Italian classic that follows a young couple in Milan during a plague in the 1600s. And Pope Francis obviously saw some parallels there between their plague and the pandemic that we were going through. Now, I saw that the Pope's biographer, Austin Ivory, who wrote two biographies of Pope Francis, first The Great Reformer and then Wounded Shepherd, and then he co-wrote with the Pope Let Us Dream last year. Austin had written a piece explaining how the book The Betrothed had shaped Pope Francis's thinking during the pandemic. And I figured that Austin, having worked so closely with the Pope, probably knew of some of the other books that had really shaped Pope Francis's thinking throughout his life. So with summer just around the corner here in the Northern Hemisphere, I decided to call Austin up, and together we came up with a list of three books that you can read to understand Pope Francis a little bit better. Think of it as the Pope Francis summer reading list. Those books are The Betrothed by Alessandro Manzoni, Lord of the World by Robert Hugh Benson, and a short story, The Garden of Forking Paths by Jorge Luis Borges. So on today's show, Austin and I will discuss each of these books, a couple of the main themes, their connection to Pope Francis, and what we think some of the lessons are that each book offers us about Pope Francis. So without further ado, here is my interview with Austin Ivory. Welcome to Inside the Vatican, Austin. Hey, great to be with you, Colleen. Good to hear from you. Okay, so first off, we'll discuss the betrothed, I promessi sposi in Italian. And this is an 1842 Italian novel. It's kind of a, a classic. Tell me about Pope Francis's connection to the work, first of all. I mean, if, if we're going to talk about Francis and literature, then, you know, there are so many different authors. You know, we've got Peggy and Dostoevsky and Virgil and so on. But actually, this novel by uh, Alessandro Manzoni called in Italian I Promessi Sposi, The Betrothed, really just keeps coming up. It's the iconic book, I guess one would have to say, of his childhood particularly. It's also really the iconic 
work of literature for Italy. And it occupies the kind of place in the Italian canon. And I shouldn't think there isn't really an equivalent either in the US or the UK. In other words, you know, if Dickens had read one, had written one novel, maybe that would be it. But the idea that you should have this one novel, the young Jorge Mario Bergoglio growing up in Buenos Aires with his grandparents who had, of course, emigrated from Piedmont in Italy and were very keen for the little boy to you know, re- retain, to understand his roots and retain links to Italy. Um, you know, they used to regularly read the book to him. And in fact, he could recite you know, the opening paragraph uh, over many, many years. So it, it's it's a book which uh, which is clearly just there uh, in his childhood, and he mentions it uh, as uh, when he becomes pope. I mean, it's there sitting on the table mm-hmm. in his room when Father Antonio Spadaro, of course, interviews him famously for American Magazine, uh, and 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 then of course we've been hearing about it last year, particularly because of the uh, of the pandemic, and that. That's uh, that's really why suddenly everybody got interested in it. Right. This novel is set during a plague in the 1600s uh, in Milan. And maybe you could tell us, you know, just a, a very brief summary. Obviously, it's an 800 page book, so we can't cover it all. But just what are what are some of the basic plot points and uh, what are some of the themes this book is grappling with? Sure. Well, I mean, it's a great rag tag of a novel. It's about 700 pages long. And confusingly, it's written, I mean, as you said, it's published 1842, but it's set 200 years earlier against the backdrop of the Spanish-Austrian rule in northern Italy. So sort of Milan really features very heavily in the book. And halfway through the novel, halfway through, the, we, we get this uh, plague that in fact did strike Milan around 1630. So although it's a, it's a novel, it features in the middle of it this very real account of this very real plague. And in fact, Mansoni himself switches into a sort of documentary mode and gives us lots of facts and details um, uh, about this plague. So the plague becomes, uh, uh, the sort of, all the characters end up gathering there and being... But basically, the novel is is the story of two uh, young people who want to marry. And uh, the, 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 the woman, Lucia, is desired by the local strongman, Don Rodrigo, who's a nasty character. Don Rodrigo scares the local parish priest, Don Abondio, uh, into not marrying them. And so Don Abondio fearfully just puts it off, endlessly puts it off. And that's really, I mean, one has to say that's the, that's the basis for the book, is the story of this young couple and then everything that happens to them and their, their desire to marry. Because along the way, we meet these incredible cast of characters. And, and one of the things about uh, the betrothed that makes it such an important book, you know, particularly for the Italian Catholic imagination, is that you know, it's a deeply Catholic book, and Mansoni himself was a, a, a very, uh, you know, very committed Catholic. So you have these characters in the novel: Donna Bondio, the cowardly priest, the saintly cardinal uh, of Milan, Borromeo. Uh, you have, uh, and then the, the, these very saintly Franciscan friars who give of themselves and take care of the people, the plague victims. So you have this, this cast of characters uh, anyway, the strong man, the bad man, the young man, and then this cast of sort of Catholic clerical characters who all represent different things, which is, I mean, part of the big fun of the novel. So Pope Francis starts referencing this novel a lot during the pandemic, and he had one reference to it where he said, don't don't be a Donna Bondio, right? Don't be this cowardly priest. Um, so let's talk a little bit about some of the influences that the betrothed had on Pope Francis's thinking during during the pandemic, uh, and some of some of the references you you asked him about this. I was wondering if you could start drawing some of those connections for us. Sure. So so uh, I think that one of the first references anyway was March uh, twenty twenty when Francis spoke about 
he said he was thinking of the priests at this time. This is this is the beginning of lockdown. The creativity of priests who think of all the different ways of being with people so that the people aren't alone. And he praised them as priests with apostolic zeal who understand that in times of pandemic you shouldn't be don abondio. And of course, he just said this, and and everybody in Italy knew exactly who he meant, and nobody outside Italy knew what he was talking about. But <laughs> what he meant was, you know, don't be a cowardly priest who sort of stays behind in the in in your house, afraid to go out. So what Francis was doing was using the, the, the Mansoni story of the different characters and their response to the plague to invite um, you know, the Italian church, in a sense, to emulate um, the attitude of the church at the time. And, and it, is, it is really interesting that uh, if you look at the description of the plague, I mean, the church really does emerge from the story a, a hero. I mean, they're, they're the ones who create um, this extraordinary area of the city called the Lazzaretto, which is uh, um, because, of course, they couldn't have uh, a lockdown in the way that we have it because people just didn't live separately in that way. So what they did was when people were infected, they separated them and they had to, they had to quickly separate them. And they were all put in this, in this area where you know, most of them, of course, died. Well, all that was administered and run by the Franciscans, who uh, are tremendous heroes uh, in the novel, and the local cardinal too, who, at great personal risk to himself, you know, went out. Now, this, this was kind of controversial when Francis said this, because of course, uh, you know, at the same time, Francis was saying, "Well, we we right. need to because we were saying we need to stay separate." We, well, you know, he also kept saying, "Well, you know, it's important that priests observe, you know, social distancing and take precautions." So it, it wasn't about you know, seeking death. It wasn't a sort of, cra- but it, on the other hand, it was let's not let the fear and let's not let the restrictions stop us from being what we're here to do as priests, which is, of course, to serve our people in their hour of need. So it, it, it was, it was, I thought, a very, a very intelligent use of the of the Mansoni novel to communicate, as it were, the church's pastoral policy in a time of plague. So Austin, you mentioned this Latoretto, which is this. Um- it's it's basically a, a tent hospital kind of recovery area set up in a portion of the city. And that's an image that will be very familiar to anybody who's been listening to Pope Francis over the last eight years, this image of a field hospital, of the church as a field hospital. Is, uh, is this where he gets that image? Well, I'm pretty sure it is. Uh, I mean, I can't be absolutely sure, but it just seems to me fairly obvious. Uh, I mean, when he talked about the field hospital church to to Father Spadaro in the Famous America magazine interview, um, he, he said he had the book on his desk and he was reading it again. Um, it just seems kind of obvious. Lazzaretto uh, comes, is named, by the way, for Lazarus, you know, mm. who, of course, Jesus raises from the dead. So uh, it, it, it has a special name. It wasn't called, you know, a field Field hospital, field hospital is a, a much more modern term, but it's it's almost certainly the the inspiration for for Francis's metaphor. I mean, Mansoni describes it. I think actually some of the most successful pages in in the novel are when he describes uh, almost with a sort of a camera like uh, attention uh, about. I mean, sixteen thousand people. He says you know, stricken with the plague, crammed into sheds and tents. Um, they have. They have, you know, pitiful scenes of babies of dead mothers, you know, being suckled by she goats. Uh, I mean, just a, a picture of hell, and yet it's a picture also of great grace because these Capuchin—I said they're Franciscans—they're Capuchin Franciscan friars. You know, they're rushing around, feeding, comforting the sick, consoling the dying, um, and of course, many of them becoming I- infected themselves. So it's it's a place where 
which becomes then the backdrop also to to great conversion. So it's a place of grace, I suppose we would have to say, in the midst of this of these extraordinary scenes. Uh, uh, this, the, you know, God's grace flows through it, and becomes the place also where you know, because this being a nineteenth-century novel, by the way, there's no such thing as a as a stretched coincidence. You know, people are always running into each other in the most improbable ways. You know how in the nineteenth-century mm-hmm. novels that happens. Of course, the, the two the two lovers meet up, um, and Father Christophe Foro, who's who's the who had been accompanying them and shown them great kindness, uh, you know cares for them. Renzo's searching for Lucia, and he stumbles on this uh, extraordinary sermon uh, uh, by the superior of the Capuchins, Father Felice. And he's giving this sermon to a group of recovered plague sufferers who are effectively being let back into the city. Right? And he gives them this, this amazing uh, homily, which of course Renzo you know, happens to stumble on, and, 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 and Mansoni records. And so, what the what 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 Father Felice is asking them to do is to say, you know, the thousands in the cemetery, you know, think about why you've been saved. You know, why did he make that choice, my children? Was it not to keep for himself a small nation chastened by affliction and fired by gratitude? So, effectively, he's urging them to embrace a new life, which is a transformed uh, existence. Now, interestingly, Francis used this very sermon. Uh, when he was at, when he was talking to doctors and health workers in June last year, they were from Lombardia, and he and he he literally says, you know, you have been on the front lines of this pandemic. Uh, you know, the pandemic has profoundly marked your life, the life of your communities, and he says, you know, we have to honour the suffering of the sick, we have to honour the, the the dead, and to see that those of us who have survived, you know, we must. It is now up to us to give this testimony of gratuitous and general, generous love. And then literally he quotes then from the from, from this great slab of, of, of the homily of Father Felice. Yeah, you actually, you started the quote, but I, I wanted to keep reading part of that, uh, what Felice says in the novel, because it, it resonates so much with what we've been hearing from Pope Francis over the last year, both during, you know, the most intense lockdowns back in March, April, but also uh, in Fratelli Tutti and then in the book that you worked on with him, uh, let us dream. Felice says, was it not so that the memory of our own sufferings might make us compassionate and helpful to our neighbors? And then he urges them to begin, quote, a new life, which shall be all charity. Let those of us who have got back all their strength, give a brotherly arm to the weak. I mean, that's textbook Francis. It is absolutely. You got a chance to ask him about this when you worked on an interview that was published in a few different uh, English media outlets, Commonweal here in the US. Um, and you, you asked him about this book and what lessons he pulled out. And uh, I know that he talked about this one story of uh, Cardinal Barameo visiting the plague victims with his window closed. I was wondering if you could talk to me about that and the lesson from it. Yeah, yes. And, and this surprised me because um, of all the things that he should pull out of the novel. Because, I mean, interestingly, Cardinal Borromeo uh, is portrayed by by Mansoni, you know, in very, very, um, very positive terms. I mean, he, he's... Uh, uh, Mansoni describes in some detail how he was scrupulous in observing, you know, the precautions, a bit like you know, the, the the social distancing. Um, but Mansoni says, you know, his duty came first to be available for all who needed him, hastening through the streets of the city to bring help to the poor wretches who were quarantined in their own houses. In other words, you know, the very image one might say of a Francis um, bishop, and yet Francis pulls out this moment where. Uh, where Cardinal Borromeo is in a village and he doesn't get out of his carriage. And this kind of deeply hurt and offended the people 
uh, of that village. So, yeah, of course, the point that Francis wanted, was trying to make was the point that he often makes about closeness. But interestingly, he 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 made Cardinal Borromeo uh, an, a negative figure, which which I found very interesting. And somebody after later said to me that they weren't sure that that was in the novel. <laughs> I actually, haven't gone through and checked. But. Right. I think there's also a question here of whether whether all of this is historically accurate. You know, of course. Yeah, I think that. Pope Francis emphasizing closeness throughout the beginning of the pandemic and and in this interview as well that that he gave you was something that surprised a lot of people because we were in such a time of distance and I was I was wondering if you could speak at all to you know maybe the the tension between that necessity of us staying apart and Francis urging that but then at the same time him urging closeness what what kind of closeness are we talking about because obviously it's hard to say when you have this example of you know, these Franciscans running out and, and being, you know, among the sick in, in this tent. Yeah, I mean, you know, you, you can't obviously say that Francis was urging today's clergy to act in the same way as those Capuchins, because you know, we live in an age where we know much more about how transmission happens. And anyway, the whole strategy, of course, of Western society in response to COVID-19 has been confinement. And I think that's the main difference that, uh, you know, I, I, we need to emphasize here. You know, there was no confinement uh, in the anti-plague strategy of the 17th century, because you know nobody lived in isolation from anybody else. So the confinement of the or separation, rather, uh, it was quarantine. That's where we get the word quarantine. You know, it, it, people were actually sectioned off from, from the other. In that context, I think you know, in a, the church had a sort of straightforward choice: are you with the are you with the sick or, or are you with the well? And it's very clear that the church needs to be with the sick. Now, nowadays, and in the context of COVID nineteen, the church also needs to be with the sick, but n- not necessarily in physical proximity, obviously, because that that can help to spread the disease. Francis resolves this, I think, with with the word which he used with me in that interview uh, last year, which is creativity. In other words, the church needs to find new creative ways of being close. And yeah, we can all give examples over the last year, can't we, of, of new kinds of closeness that the church has learned in the context of the pandemic, whether it's you know Zoom masses or, or, or whatever. And Francis last year was praising a number of examples of a new just well creativity in fact i remember in the in the interview one of the things uh, he mentioned was an anecdote about a bishop who was very worried because one of his priests could no longer uh, hear conf- give absolution hear confessions to the sick in covid wards obviously and how he gave a sort of general general absolution from the corridor um, and the, the bishop had been worried about this, and Francis basically said to him, "No, no, no! This is what you need to do," you know. And so he he, he then said the bishop was then going off, you know, dispensing reconciliation everywhere. That's the, I think in a context of plague, uh, you have a different way of achieving the same thing. Closeness remains the objective, but you find new ways. So I think if we were to um, pitch this book to our listeners, we'd say reading the this Manzoni novel will help you understand one one of the big, big literary influences in Italy and in Pope Francis's life. It's a story he grew up on. Uh, but I think it also helps us understand his view on the pandemic and how we should respond to it, particularly this thing that Father Felice says, right? That this is a chance for us to reflect on this awful thing that we've been through and to say, how can I go forward and live a life that is all charity, as he says. So again, that is The Betrothed by Alessandro Manzoni.
Okay, Austin, our second book that we're going to discuss is Lord of the World by Robert Hugh Benson. This is from 1907, and it's kind of an apocalyptic, dystopian, Catholic, Catholics versus Masons kind of thing. Uh, tell me about it. Tell me about Pope Francis' connection with it. Where do you, where do you begin with The Lord of the World? Uh, uh, it's an extraordinary book. And I can't tell you exactly how Bergoglio, you know, first comes across it or, or first reads it. I'm assuming um, that it was part of the reading material of Jesuit, uh, you know, novices and scholastics, Jesuits in training uh, back in the in the 1960s when, when he was in training. Um, certainly, but it, it, even though very few people nowadays have heard of it, um, it is actually was a very very important novel at the time. So R. H. Benson came from a very famous family in England. Uh, his father had been the Archbishop of Canterbury. So when he converted to Catholicism in 1903, it was a celebrity conversion, a bit like Cardinal Newman's uh, decades earlier. Yeah, sure. He became a very public figure. Uh, he was, a, he was a, a well-known public preacher. He ended up giving uh, a, a, a homilies in Rome. He was a sort of Vatican-appointed preacher. So um, he, he was really quite a big figure. And this novel, he wrote about 15 novels, most of them historical I mean, that, really, his that was his metier was historical fiction. He wrote, for example, a, a book called "Come Rack, Come Rope," which is probably the finest of his historical novels, which was about the persecution of, of the martyrs at the time of the Ref, of the English Reformation. So that's his background. That's it. That's it. And you know, Lord of the World was at the time. I mean, we've all heard, we all remember H.G. Wells and Aldous Huxley and those dis great dystopian fictions. Well, Lord of the World really was one of them. Um, and I think yeah, the, the fact that it's become so forgotten is in itself very interesting. But clearly it made a big impact on, 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 on Francis, on Bergoglio. And just to just so before we dig into the book, I mean, where does he first mention it? Well, actually, he mentions it way back in uh, November 2013 in the context of a homily in which he's denouncing what he calls adolescent progressivism. And then he, he mentions it again in 2015 on the plane to Manila uh, or from Manila where, where he says, you know, if you want to understand ideological colonization, read this book. And everybody, <laughs> you know, what on earth is this book? Uh, and so, you know, a few of us downloaded it and, and, and we're very surprised by what we read. I mean, how do you describe it? It's it's um, it imagines a future in which there's really secular humanism under the, under the uh, rule really of Freemasons. Secular humanism has come to dominate, uh, and really all that's left of religion is Catholicism. You know, Protestantism, and th there's Catholicism in the West, and then there's sort of the Eastern religions. But we have this this world in which euthanasia is practiced. Um, yeah, secular humanism has triumphed. Um, and the church has really shrunk to a sort of shell of itself, really. Uh, and that's the drama uh, of, the, of the novel set actually imagined in where at the time that we're now in, and imagined this at the beginning of the 21st century, interestingly. And that's why Francis often says, you know, you want to know what's happening <laughs> at the moment, read Lord of the World. But I mean, that is a, a pretty crazy way to diagnose the world that we live in right now, because this is very much, it's, it's dystopian, it's really Really bizarre. You have this this uh, kind of world ruler, Ju Julian Felsenberg, who uh, has sort of silently seduced the whole world into following him. And humanity, you know, collectively makes peace and decides that they no longer need religion because they've recognized that that God is humanity, you know, and and so they only need to to look to one another for for all the answers and. 
you end up having this kind of final impending clash that you never actually see between between the Pope and Felsenberg. Exactly. So, so the apocalyptic nature of the novel, obviously, you know, the, the end times which Benson depicts, obviously we're not in. Uh, but so much of what you've just said, I was thinking as you were saying, well, that's not a bad description in many ways of the state we are in. Uh, you know, you think of euthanasia now being practiced you know, regularly in Belgium. I would say secular humanism you know, has triumphed, particularly in the international agencies and so on. Um, so uh, I think there's a sort of, and there's a lot about the, the book, by the way, which, you know, predicts things which have come, you know, he predicted, for example, superhighways uh, and, you know, that we would all go around in planes and so on, which in 1907 was, was you know, was quite prophetic. He got other things wrong. But look, what this novel is really about, and that, you know, it's, it's there in the title, it's about the Antichrist. And, and Benson himself talking about the book when he was writing it, he said, I'm writing a book about the Antichrist. So the, I think the genius of the novel and the reason why Francis you know, likes it so much is that it understands that the Antichrist comes in a form which is seductive, reasonable, um, you know, in the guise of compassion, invoking equality and other, yeah, bringing peace and unity. So it's the seductiveness of the Antichrist, you know, that makes the Antichrist so so tempting and, and so dangerous. Um, so what? So why is it that he sees this this presence now in the world? Well. When he talked about when he talked to the journalists on the plane about ideological colonization, he was talking about um, I suppose what in Laudato to see is called the technocratic paradigm, which is the triumph of a certain kind of humanism, which is all about it's it's pragmatic, it's it's technical, you know, whatever works, you know, uh, is right and is good and so on. So everything becomes organized around ultimately around you know, the principles of the strong. So you know, relativism rejects ethical boundaries. And then, in the name of tolerance, you know, religion is banned, uh, and so on. So, what Francis and he's repeated this a number of times before. By the way, he became pope. He talked about this ideological colonization. Otherwise, he, he refers to it as a sort of uniform thinking. What he sees is this idea that this eradication of difference. Yeah. So that in the name of unity or equality, the legitimate diversity, which is an expression of our humanity. Gets uh, gets eroded, and and that so he's often said, you know, I don't see the world as a sphere; I see it as a polyhedron. You know that famous analogy he uses. Why polyhedron? Because a polyhedron, uh, there's a unity there, but it respects differences, and, and so that's really what he, that's the heart of where I think Francis relates to this novel. Yeah, one place that I wanted to draw out where he had mentioned it was in this speech that we reference a lot on Inside the Vatican that he gave to. The cardinals who are about to go into conclave, who would later elect him, which a lot of people point to this as, oh, this was the moment that that really cemented him as somebody that a lot of the the voters might be interested in electing as pope. In this speech, which is where we get his image of, you know, open up the windows to the church and let the Holy Spirit blow in, you know, we've kind of become dusty and cold and all of this. He talks about, he says, this, this comes from the notes that he gave to one of the cardinals who was present. Afterwards, he says, The church, when it is self-referential, without realizing it, thinks that it has its own light. It stops being the mysterium lunae and gives rise to that evil which is so grave, that of spiritual worldliness, which is an idea from another Jesuit theologian, that of living to give glory to one another. I mean, that's 
that, that is like the core sin of this this novel, right? The, exactly. the core sin of this uh, Antichrist. So worldliness. So you know, who is the Lord of the world? It's the world in the sense, of course, that you know Jesus means it when he talks about the, the forces of, of this world, or in Saint John's Gospel, you know, the world knew him not. It's it's the it's the world that tries to live without God. It's the world that believes in power ultimately, um, and this is this is what uh, this is what the Pope was was what Bergoglio was referring to in that famous speech on the eve of the of the conclave so so this term spiritual worldliness which which he invoked in that famous speech comes from Henri de Lubac and uh, Henri de Lubac said it's the worst thing that can happen to the church it's a kind of corruption a deep-seated corruption where um, religion becomes not for the sake of the gospel but for our own benefit or our own enrichment. I'll give you an example. Spiritual worldliness, um, for example, a lot of religious people, sadly, use their religion as a way of saying, I'm right, you're wrong. I'm saved, you're condemned. In other words, it, it brings me the benefit of my own sense of my own self-righteousness. That would be an example of worldliness. Obviously, there are more obvious examples of corruption, you know, where people use their position. I mean, part of the vice of clericalism, uh, you know, is that people use that sense of privilege um, with the respect that they're given as priests, they will often use it to exploit people, you know, in, in a number of different ways. So it has a whole range of, uh, of connotations or meanings, but really at the heart of it, it's talking about um, the corruption of the church by by the culture of the world. Now, interestingly, in the in the book, um, and very few people sort of spot this, is that there are suicide bombers in the book, uh, and the suicide bombers are Catholic. You know, things have come to such a pass where you know even the sort of Catholics say, no, no, the only way we can we can deal with this is you know is through violence. Uh, in fact, long before jihadism, you know, in Lord of the World, Catholics are, are suicide bombers. Um, and of course, what that suggests is that even Catholics could be colonized ideologically, you know, by the culture. Um, so that's 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 what he's what he's getting at there. Now, I, I think. The, the interesting thing about the ideological colonization and the single thinking is that he sees in a lot of globalism, a lot of the thinking that goes with um, big international agencies, for example, um, a, a lot of this sort of thinking. And uh, and this might surprise or, or, or bother some of people who are listening, but he's never made this specific connection. But you know, France is very opposed to gay marriage, for example, same-sex marriage, because that to him is an example of the the eradication of the uniqueness of marriage which is you know man woman creative uh, f fertile and so on so um uh, it's the attempt i suppose to to try and make everything equal in the name of equality but eradicate the difference and organize everything around our own power and convenience it's kind of interesting too um you can read this book from a lot of different church political angles if you want to you know um this was also a favorite book of pope benedict's and he 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 referenced it a lot too and one place where uh, some of the you know valuing religious expression as a means to your own ends uh that that is really obvious in the book is that you get this group of former catholic priests who are all very you know experts in liturgy basically and when the world collectively decides to worship felsenberg the antichrist leader of the world all of these uh all of these sort of highly trained sacristans 
volunteer to become the ones who organize the worship services yes. and make them very highly structured, right. Right. you know, worshiping yes. the Antichrist. Like yes. it can it can go so many different ways. And, and I think he took Benson took took that from the French Revolution, you know, and this attempt to create a kind mm. of civil religion. But isn't it interesting in the novel that the justification for the eradication of religion is that religion is divisive? Mm -hmm. You know, that, isn't that the ultimate secular humanist justification for eroding freedom of religion is that, you know, well, religion divides people off from each other. And that becomes essentially the justification for, t for totalitarianism. You know, let, 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 let us all be one in the Lord of the world is totalitarianism. Mm -hmm. When Christ says, let them all be one, he means let there be a unity forged out of their, their, their reconciled diversity. Right. And it gives you a good concept too of uh, this unity that Francis has been calling for, has been pushing for, you know, in the middle of this very divided church where he says it's, it's a unity of differences. Francis is not interested in homogeny. Exactly. And in fact, he, he always says that the, the sign of the Holy Spirit is diversity is respected. So you have, you have this respect for diversity when the Holy Spirit unites. That's how you know it's of the Spirit. Austin, I know we have so, so much to say about this book. And we've actually yes. gone on longer than we've talked about the much longer book, um, The Betrothed. Now, uh, one thing I did want to ask you about is that I, there's mm. a very obvious parallel here to Pope Francis's Ignatian Jesuit spirituality which is that you can read this Antichrist character as kind of a, a fictionalized example of what uh, St. Ignatius would call the, the evil spirit or Satan appearing in the form of an angel of light. And I was wondering if you could talk about that. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think uh, very, uh, this is, I guess, really the reason that the Jesuits all read it uh, in Argentina in the 1960s is that the Antichrist, of course, is a is a, a depiction of what St. Ignatius in his uh, second week rules for discernment calls the temptation under the guise of an angel of light, subangelo lucis, which is where uh, you know, the, the, the bad spirit appeals, appeals to you, not by urging you to do bad things, but by urging you in a sense to do good things. Um, and that's how he seduces you. Now in the church, it's a bit like, you know, whenever actually evil is performed in the church, it's often begins with an appeal to what is considered good. You know, in other words, tradition or the defense of Christianity or evangelization or something, right? So that's, that's Ignatius's point. You can often only spot that this is of the bad spirit by tracing it back and seeing its effects and its fruits. And I think this is exactly what, what Lord of the World is about. That's right. All right. So I think our final pitch for this one is uh, this can help us understand some of Pope Francis's main ideas like, you know, ideological colonization, which is one that I know I and I think a lot of our listeners have have trouble with because he brings it up in in really sort of tense and, and hot topic uh, issues like gay marriage. And then also, you know, his his concerns about globalization in some ways. And also it'll give you some insight into some uh, Ignatian discernment. <laughs>
All right, the last story that we are going to discuss today is actually a short story by the Argentinian author Jorge Luis Borges. It's called The Garden of Forking Paths. And if if Lord of the World wasn't weird enough for you, now we've got this one. <laughs> Before we get into it, let's talk about Borges himself. Uh, he actually sort of has an interesting relationship with, with Pope Francis. They go way back, right? Well, this is the fun thing. I mean, I, I'm not sure I would call Borges one of uh, France's favorite authors. I mean, he certainly mentioned to me, I know he admires him, which Argentine doesn't, which of us doesn't admire the stories of Borges. Um, but I think the, the, the joy of the, of the reference really is the personal connection. So Jorge Mario Bergoglio is a Jesuit scholastic, that's to say a Jesuit in training. And part of what they do with, with the Jesuit training is when, they've, when you've studied some philosophy, they then take you away from books and get you to teach, at least they did in those days. So he was sent to a very exclusive, uh, important Jesuit school in Santa Fe in Argentina called La Inmaculada. And there he was a, a great teacher. And one of the things he did was he, he created a, what he called the Academy of St. Teresa, which were, where students basically were encouraged to read uh, very, very widely. A whole generation of students remember Bergoglio then as a teacher, you know, introducing them to these great works. Anyway, among the things that Bergoglio did, which really blew their mind, was that in 1965, he managed to secure a visit from none other than the great writer Jorge Luis Borges, who uh, hadn't, I suppose, achieved the huge fame that he would get later on internationally, but certainly in Argentina was a very, very big figure indeed. So Jorge Melilla, who was one of the uh, students of Bergoglio, Who's written a very has written a memoir about all of this remembers you know that just how cock a hoop they were you know they had scored this amazing uh, coup which Bergoglio had secured and the local university was so sort of jealous of this they, they described it as like the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra being invited to play at a children's birthday party <laughs> so anyway Borges came 1965. And he's invited to give a whole series of talks. It wasn't just a day. It was over a series of days. He gave a talk on gaucho poems, which is you know, gaucho, the Argentine kind of cowboy literary genre. And apparently, you know, completely uh, was completely spellbinding and brilliant and so on. Uh, then what happened was that Bergoglio being a quite a taskmaster, he said, right, you boys, you know, you've, you've heard from the great man. Now I want you to write some stories, which, uh, you know, in, in the sort of best Borges style. So these boys all wrote stories, short stories, and the eight best of them were then collected in a file uh, labeled original stories. And the rector of the, uh, of the college then sent them to uh, Borges, um, who was completely delighted. And Borges wrote back and said, you know, this is marvelous, and offering to write a prologue. And of course, nobody had ever thought that these could ever be a book. Uh, Borges writes the prologue to what then was published as the same title, Original Stories, Cuentos Originales. And, um, uh, and Bergoglio edited the book, it doesn't appear in it, but edited it. And Borges indeed wrote the, wrote the prologue. And, um, just by the way, a little anecdote here. Jorge Melilla, who, who, who tells this story uh, brilliantly, uh, brought out a book himself in which he recounts all this with a prologue by none other than Bergoglio. So um, uh, Jorge Melilla, who of course features in the book, uh, is, is the only Argentine you know, to <laughs> have had books prologued by both Borges and the Pope. <laughs> there we go. Um, but anyway, that's, that's the story. That's why that's the connection between Bergoglio and Borges. It marked a whole generation. Okay, so we have all of that in the background. Now let's take on the task of attempting to summarize the Garden of Forking Paths. I know that this is kind of beloved by media theorists uh, and, and maybe 
some people who are a fan of quantum physics to talk to me about what this story is about. Well, first of all, where, where does he mention the story? Well, it's actually in the prologue of, of our book, Let Us Dream, which came out in December last year, which is about his response to the crisis. And in the epilogue, he's talking about the dangers of ending up in an, in a labyrinth rather than responding to the call of the spirit, you know, to go out and build a new future. So he's talking about labyrinths. Um, and, you know, a labyrinth, of course, famously is somewhere where we go round and round. And then he mentions this short story by, by Jorge Luis Borges, The Garden of Forking Paths, in which there are a whole series of sort of diverse outcomes and futures are all possible. So ultimately, The Garden of the Forking Paths, without going too much into the kind of detail of the story, because it gets, it's incredibly convoluted. But ultimately, The Garden of the Forking Paths is a book. It's a novel, which is also a labyrinth. And it's it's a book in which uh, every possible outcome uh, is retained, and so ultimately, of course, it's 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 kind of complete chaos. But 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 the point is that uh, that that for when Francis is talking about this, it's another illustration of the the danger, if you like, of a, of a, of an inaction which is brought about by a sort of relativism, you know, where where everything is possible, nothing is possible, and that's I think the the, the idea that he's getting at here. Yeah, I, I love what he says about the Garden of Forking Paths in your book, Let Us Dream. He talks about how it's it's he uses the image while he's talking about our way of considering the future, which obviously is what a lot of Let Us Dream is about, considering how we emerge from the COVID crisis, what our future looks like. And he says, a labyrinth doesn't have to just be a physical space where we go around and around. We can create a labyrinth out of the future in our minds, which leads to a, a kind of inaction. And he says... You know, the way to do that is either kind of maybe a more, more spiritual answer to the question, which is decentering ourselves and transcending from the labyrinth, or he says to be let out by Ariadne's thread. So now he's jumping over to a Greek <laughs> Greek mythology reference. Yes, because Which he, he, he tends to do a lot. He does. I mean, I, you know, we haven't mentioned in this because it's both it's beyond both of us, Colleen. But uh, <laughs> Francis, of course, is is classically trained. And in the interview that we did last year, uh, gosh, he was quoting Virgil, um, Virgil's Enid, and um, mm -hmm. yeah, he's extremely well read in the classics. So here in in Letter Stream, he's saying that you come out of a labyrinth. Uh, Either by, as you say, decentering and transcending, or allowing yourself to be led out by Ariadne's thread, and that, of course, is a reference to to the story of, of the Minotaur. And he says, you know, the labyrinth is is where the world is right now. We're going round and round, trying not to get eaten by various Minotaurs. The Minotaur stalks the labyrinth, of course, eating everybody. Or we're moving ahead, he said, but along forking paths of endless possibilities that never get us to where we need to be. And then in the in the Greek myth, of course, Ariadne hands Theseus a ball of thread to track his way out of the labyrinth. And Francis says the ball of thread that we've been given is our creativity, that word again, to move beyond the logic of the labyrinth to, to decenter and transcend. So if you like, the, the grace that we've been given is the opportunity to come out of ourselves and build a new future. Right. And, and following the thread, he says, involves a lot of attentiveness, right? You have to wait for the thread to kind of twitch. And he says, when you feel a twitch, stop and pray. Read the gospel if you're a Christian or just create space inside yourself to listen and then act. He says, call somewhere, say you don't have a clue what they do, but you can help. <laughs> well, and the, twi the twitch upon the thread that you've just talked about is yet another literary illusion. I mean, on the same page, he has three, because the, the twitch upon the thread is famously from the Father Brown stories by G.K. Chesterton. Oh, uh, I didn't which, catch that. Um, yeah, yeah, which, which, which Evelyn Waugh quotes in Brideshead Revisited. 
and Father Brown saying, um, you know, that he, I, I have, I have fastened a thread to him, talking about somebody who he's accompanying spiritually, and and I'm letting him wander out, you know, freely into the world until one day he feels the twitch upon the thread, and that's what brings him back. So he's talking here about conversion, uh, and so Francis just immediately switches Ariadne's gift. I mean, he he mixes it all up here. Ariadne's gift is the spirit calling us out of ourselves the twitch upon the thread of which G.K. Chesterton spoke in the Father Brown stories. It is others who, like Ariadne, help us to find a way out to give the best of ourselves. Yeah, Again, a very Francis message. We can't do this alone. We need others. All right, Austin. So before we uh, weave ourselves a garden of forking literary references, um, what is what is our pitch for this book? What can a uh, listener or reader Learn about Francis when they read this short story. Well, you know, I, I've I've looked through in my research for for things that Francis or Bergoglio before he became Pope said about Borges, and I did find something in in 2010, which is that he said he had a genius at Borges. This is had a genius's knack for talking about any subject without ever showing off, and I think there's something about Borges that's this. He's playful. Uh, he's you know phenomenally clever, but he's not he's not sort of fascinated by himself. And um, there's a there's a humility in Borges's writing. It's crisp. It's it's expressive. It's playful. And I think that captures actually something of Francis and Francis's, by the way, own writing style. I've always said you know Francis is a great writer. He's a natural writer, and and I think that's very true of him. And he'll really work on a text as I experienced with Letter Stream, you know, until he gets it right. And, and that, so I. I I feel even though they're from two very different worlds in Argentina, Borges from a sort of very liberal cosmopolitan family and so on, but, but I actually think there is a sort of identification there between these two great Argentines, both, you know, both playful, wise, and master stylists. So maybe it's a way to just uh, get a sense of some literature that Pope Francis really appreciated. I mean, you can't do worse than pick up any Borges short story. If you want to start, start with Ficciones. It's in English, even though it's a Spanish title, which is a collection of those short stories from the 50s and 60s. You know, they are just fascinating. Uh, and, you know, it just I invite anybody to read a Borges short story and not enjoy it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the first place that I ever noticed Pope Francis referencing Borges was in Amoris Laetitia, where he excerpts one of the poems that I, I just think is beautiful. So he's talking about couples in love, you know, uh, who basically still need to be part of their communities. And he's saying, you know, don't don't get turned in on one another. And which is, you know, such a beautiful summary of of the way that Pope Francis sees families as a part of society, as a part of a much bigger family. That was gorgeous. Lovely. And very, and very typical of Francis to find the one Borges poem, which is actually very warm because Borges' yes. style is pretty, I'd say, pretty bloodless. But that poem is very is, is lovely, isn't it? And yeah. Even even a lot of the rest of that poem is pretty <laughs> pretty cold. Yes, that's right. That's from the poem, uh, Kai, Kai, I Help me with the Spanish. Calle Desconocida. Yeah, Calle Desconocida, which means unknown street or street without a name. There we are. And it's easy to find a, a good English translation of that. So, Austin, I want to step back a little bit uh, and just look at these these three works in context, because I think that actually, you know, we, we chose these books kind of just based on what we had read and what we knew that Pope Francis had referenced. Uh, but we didn't we weren't meaning to choose anything with a united theme, but one kind of emerged while while I was going through these, which is, I think that they're all about how we imagine the future, which obviously is so much of what you wrote about with him in, in Let Us Dream. You know, we've got the Garden of Forking Paths that's telling us not to think 
only about ourselves in like a self-reflective way about the future. Lord of the World is this warning against considering a future that's all about humanity and forgets God. And then we have, you know, back to the betrothed, back to Father Felice's homily, he says, it's never too late to begin a life which shall be all charity, right? He sees us as being able to move into a future where where we are better. And it feels like that is just a great summary of everything that Francis has been telling us for the last year and also for the last, you know, eight years. I think that's a brilliant link you found there. It hadn't occurred to me. And I think that's absolutely right. And very typical of Francis because actually he's not somebody given to looking back. He's not somebody who who who, who lives in the past. Quite quite to the contrary, he's always living in a present open to the future. Uh, and so that how appropriate that we should have chosen these three texts that that express exactly that. Austin, it has been an absolute pleasure discussing these with you. And thank you also for giving me the excuse to, uh, to read some good books. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks so much. Thanks. You can find Austin Ivory's books, The Great Reformer, Wounded Shepherd, and his book with Pope Francis, Let Us Dream, wherever books are sold. Inside the Vatican is a production of America Media. This week's episode was produced by Maggie Van Dorn and mixed by Kevin Christopher Robles. You can find in-depth and up-to-date Vatican coverage at americamagazine.org and follow us on Twitter at INSDEVaticanPod. And email us your comments, your questions, and your reflections on these three books at InsideTheVatican at americamedia.org. Finally, if you want to support our show, the best way to do that is by subscribing to America Magazine. You can do that at americamagazine.org slash subscribe. For America Media, I'm your host and producer, Colleen Deli. We'll see you next time. Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.